Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So I've missed you guys. I've been away for a couple weeks. Um, it seems like forever <laughs> whenever I've gone uh, longer than a couple weeks. Um, and I'm always very grateful. Uh, when I leave and I don't have that, the, the support of the Sangha. How many of you feel that if you're away from like a group like this, a meditation group? Um, coming back to it, you always feel uh, the merit of it, the, the benefit of it, I should say. So I want to chat today about meditation. You guys ever heard of that? It's this big thing now. Everybody's doing it. Or at least they say they are. Yeah. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I want to open it up for questions today. I'll talk a little bit, but I want it to be more interactive so we can maybe work on any questions that you might have in your practice maybe clarify some things or just insights or whatnot. So one thing that came up for me, obviously such a huge topic, and kind of looking back as I was preparing, I was thinking about kind of the most important thing that I've witnessed about my own practice is that is my ability to deal with failure. Uh, the ability to deal with failure, and of course, this is a self-imposed um, thing, like self, like uh, my own idea of what failure might look like, right? But over the course of of, of a of a long uh, practice, of maybe a lifetime of, of practice, uh, we want to obviously do it for the rest of our lives. It's a lifelong thing. It's like there's obviously a lot of a lot of pitfalls and we need that perseverance and one thing that I noticed is that my practice I'm not uh, my practice is not giving me you know insight after insight and I don't feel like I'm more and more enlightened whatever that might be <laughs> but I'm able to forgive myself more and more and it's enabling me to to continue to practice more and more, if that makes sense. The more I forgive myself, the more that I fail, I could fail almost every day, that I wish I could do more. It's just an idea that you might carry too, like the idea that you should do more. I was at a retreat talking with a couple, teaching with a couple senior teachers and somebody asks, what most people ask is, how much do you guys meditate a day? And one of the other teachers said, uh, whatever that number might be, it's not enough. <laughs> like, and it's on our head, like, whatever we're, whatever, how much, doesn't matter how much we're meditating, there's an idea, like, it's just, it's not enough. Are we reading enough, or listening enough, or practicing enough? It's like this idea that's not enough. And yet that idea is not too motivating for practice. And so, I've been able to forgive myself more and more that this is, that 
it's not not enough, that it is enough. Like what I did today is enough and that's it. So this perseverance I think is really, really big, this energy of perseverance and how do we get there? There's a great quote by St. Francis. It's not Francis Francis of Assisi, it's another St. Francis, I forget which one. But he said, for the path you need a cup of wisdom, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. <laughs> Maybe you've heard that one, love that one. Every single one of them, like a cup of wisdom, you know, the right understanding. And we see this, like, this goes back to you know, the Four Noble Truths, the right view, or right understanding. The biggest understanding is that I need it, <laughs> right? I need to do this. That's the right understanding. And of course, until we get to that point, then we won't do it, you know? If I'm teaching in some of the groups that I teach, they're there um, by force, <laughs> meaning they have to show up, right? Um, at some places where I teach, uh, they're not there because they necessarily want to come to meditation that day, but it's just part of the regiment, right? They, they need to show up. And so I, I do my best to ask them to find a personal motivation, like, why are you here? Can you find something? Can we talk about that? If there's, what, what is your motivation for being here today? Can we unpack that? Because without that, as we know, even if you are highly motivated as a practitioner, if you close your eyes, you could just you could just space out, right? Yeah, very easily. So we have to know why we're doing it every day. Like, why am I here? Like, why am I here right now on the cushion today? Why am I here? So extremely important. So that cup of wisdom, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And then the love piece, just massive, right? A barrel of love. Maybe we, we need a lake of love <laughs> and an ocean of patience. <laughs> but love is that bridge, right? Because without this, without this love, it's like we can't have the right understanding because we can't actually be motivated enough to overthrow our suffering because there's something about suffering that's addictive. It's really weird. Like we wallow in it, we kind of like it, you know? It's just like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, this drama of life, it's kind of neat. And it's painful and, and whatnot. But then when we have the choices, then we're introduced to choice. And then sometimes we don't choose that loving choice. Does that ring a bell with anybody? <laughs> like, oh, this is loving over here. And yet I'm still doing this thing and I'm hurting but I'm still doing it. And so that love piece is huge, like, oh, I really love myself to meditate today. I really love myself to uh, be kind, you know, today. I really love myself to forgive myself today, right? But another really cool thing about love on the path is that it's actually the result of the path and it's attainable, even in small doses. So we might say, you know, uh, you know, enlightenment today, we sit down to meditate, say, you know, obviously this kind of throws out your ability to attain it, but say, oh, I'm going to reach enlightenment today. <laughs> you know, whatever, again, whatever that means. 
I'm going to reach full liberation from all suffering for eternity today. <laughs> I'm going to send out to meditate. So that might be a little bit difficult you know, to write in the daily planner, you know. Um, reach enlightenment, 10 o'clock. Did um, it. Done. Checked. Did it. Yet, this, this love piece, this love piece is it's much more attainable. Yeah, we all know what love is, and and it, it's neat to think like this divine love, bodhicitta. It's it's mundane love. It's not love with attachment, but it's love that we feel. Like we could totally feel that. Yeah. So this piece is very motivating for us. If we do a, a loving kindness practice and we could feel the momentum of that, it's very very mo very very motivating. Even, even in small steps, so we could see that when we're practicing loving-kindness that we're a little bit more kind, a little bit more kind to ourselves, a little bit more kind to others. So this is highly motivating. And so that's, that, that's the bridge, you know. And then, of course, this leads to, to more insights, which leads to more, to more love and, and whatnot. And then an ocean of patience, an ocean of patience. I'm going to read you something from a friend of mine. This is my Dharma brother. Um, just a, a really close friend that I used to live with at the meditation centers. And we send each other things back and forth and emails about our practice and whatnot. And he randomly sent me this email out of nowhere and I call him I call him my guru and he calls me master and <laughs> of course I, I don't know why I don't have much wisdom to give to him but he's an incredible practitioner and he's just you know, he's a dad he goes to work and he's just an amazing practitioner and and he sent me his Nunjo practice which is the preliminary practices and he said, I'm just sending you this so you could rejoice because if we rejoice in the merits of others, then it accumulates. So it strengthens that intention for all beings, right? Mm -hmm. So he's been doing his Nunjo for 16 years. And one of my favorite places to even sit, even for a few moments, I used to go sit in his closet. He's got this closet, which, well, actually he moved. He used to have this closet. Mm -hmm. That was my favorite place to meditate because it was just a closet it was really really small and he it was he had tonkas and and paintings in every single square inch it was just incredible the amount of like you're just surrounded 360 degrees by these beautiful deities and this amazing altar and you could just tell how much practice was done in that little closet so I'd go in the closet I'd go visit him hang out and say I'm gonna go go in your closet <laughs> I'm gonna go chill and meditate in your closet so this is practice for 16 years. So he's done 99,027 prostrations. The Bodhicitta prayer, 48,269 times. So along with that, the prostrations in this practice. So you're doing a prostration and you're doing a refuge prayer when you're doing the prostration. And this is a full prostration. It's like a burpee. You know, it's like you go all the way down and then all the way up. If you're doing it full time, eight hours a day, It'll take you like three or four months, right? But again, he's just a dad. He's getting up, going to work. The Bodhicitta prayer, 48,269 times. He's done the 100 
hundred-syllable Vajrasattva mantra 166,916 times. That's a long mantra. Right? It's, a, it's a long mantra. The Vajrasattva mantra is really long. And again, if you're doing 100,000 of them, about three months. So he's done almost double. Well, 65, 66% more. The six-syllable uh, mantra, 53,142 times. The mandala offering, which is quite an endeavor. You like, have to take this, um, well, it's like this pan, and you, you heap a whole bunch of like, rice and jewels on, on top of it, and then you say mandala offering actually takes quite a long time. It's probably taking him the longest. 40,647 times. The seven-line prayer, 28,915 times. The Guru Mantra, 92,809 times. And this is, this is a big Nunjro practice. A lot of times you're only giving four of these practices, but his Guru gave him seven of these practices. Mm -hmm. So again, if you were just doing, like when I did my Nunjro, I just did four of these and it took me a year. Just four of them. It took me a year to finish, but I was doing it full time. He's got seven of them, seven of them to do. And then he wrote this next to it. He says, there was a long period of time where I was a bit concerned about finishing my Nundro, but now I'm just happy to be practicing Nundro. I've begun to understand how distant my actual enlightenment is and to, stop at, and to stop after a certain number would be foolish. The only time to stop would be after achieving full and complete enlightenment, the stage of no more learning, the union of Ajadara. Until then, there, there will still be a need for accumulation of merit and purification of karma, even after reaching the path of seeing, realizing emptiness directly. Still, there are stains to purify, and the guru yoga portion could be the main practice for the path of meditation. So this is after 16 years. He's like, I'm just going to hang out. I'm still going to do my preliminary practices, mm -hmm. right? So... When I was thinking of this, I was thinking of patience. You see how he's reverting back to even more and more patience, even to the, like, not really not striving anymore, to even giving up on even the seeking mind is really giving up, right? Of, of wanting that enlightenment. Like, oh, it's just, it's just, it's off in the distance. I'm just going to keep doing, doing this, right? So he's probably really close to enlightenment, right? Because <laughs> he's giving up, you know. Is he vegan? Is he vegan? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he's vegan right now. We were mostly all vegan at the centers um, or vegetarian um, off and on. But um, I don't know. I don't know if he is right now. You know, it's interesting. It's a paradox there in the Tibetan culture that nobody's, <laughs> nobody's vegan. It's like the, that the meditation centers, we would only serve vegetarian meals because um, it's more conducive to, to meditation and it's cheaper. Um, but, uh, but when the lamas would come, the, the, their Tibetan cooks would come and cook meat. And we'd go, what the hell are you doing? You're cooking meat in our kitchen and this and that. And, and actually in Tibet, it's very, very difficult to grow um, any food up there, uh, any like vegetables and whatnot up there. Um, so they eat a lot of yak meat. It's like they have to, sur to survive and they do a lot of prayers and whatnot. And, and most of them, however, 
when they're outside of that, and like the Karmapa, for example, so he's the head of one school, like the Dalai Lama's head of one school, and, and the Karmapa's head of the other school. So when he fled to India, he said, you know, no more meat. And if you can, anyone in my whole lineage, please no, no more meat, because we don't, we don't need that if you're, unless you're still like stuck in Tibet or something like necessity. that. Necessity. Yeah, as a necessity. Yeah. But. Yeah. So, thinking of patience and, and perseverance. So yeah, I just want to tell you that little story. Um, I'd like to open it up for questions. Um, I have a questions about their path or meditation and how it's going for them. How are your guys' meditation going? Any obstacles, plateaus, or even insights you would like to share? Prostitutions have you done? Yeah, I'll start. Yeah, um, sure. So, like, I'm very new to meditation, and so um, when I was introduced to it, you know, I was going to something very often when I was learning about meditation, I've kind of moved on from that, and so I think this is my really only learning opportunity um, every week, so where would you kind of suggest starting to uh, like learn more or read more or kind of get more knowledge of it? Well, I think that um, just going back on a, on a mental level, I think that a little bit goes a long way, mm -hmm. right? So especially in the beginning, we have a lot of the grasping mind that we want more and more and more and more teachings and more this and that. What do I go to, to learn more? It's about, am I practicing more? So this is the focus is, not am I learning more? Am I accumulating more? Am I, am I practicing more? Uh, do you have, you have a meditation te technique to do? Mm -hmm. You know, a meditation, meditation technique, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So um, which one is it, if I don't mind asking? Which one are you doing? I know I've worked with you a little bit, so. Yeah, well, um, it's mainly just every morning and then um, focusing on my breath and finding uh, that centerpiece of my breath and focusing on that. Okay, cool. So breath meditation could take us all the way there. I would mix that with a little little loving kindness practice, mm -hmm. a little meta practice, right? But you can go all the way there just with one, one anchor, right? It would be at the tip of the nose or the abdomen, right? So all the way there as long as we're practicing 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 and then as far as um clarifying like am i am i on track or reaching obstacles or whatnot you know community like this is good because it's adding on to those things every week and whatnot and then also a fantastic resource overall is dharma seed because we can listen to it anytime anywhere and that's a collection of talks by really qualified teachers so dharma org, okay. right Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Challenge I have is staying awake. Staying awake. Good one. Uh, me too. I torpor, uh, dullness of mind. This is this is my main hindrance. Yeah. So staying awake. It depends on what level is it. I'm a little dull mind, or am I really really sleepy? 
I'm asleep. You're asleep. Okay. City meditation, no bueno for you. <laughs> right? Seriously. So if it's really bad, do walking meditation. Mm. Right? Walking meditation, sitting meditation, even, like completely even, right? As far as the depth that one can and the insights that one can attain. So if we're really tired and this is this is habitual, really tired, walking meditation. I mean, if you're going to fall asleep walking, then I have to send you to somebody else. <laughs> but, but walking meditation is really, really good. If we have a little bit of dullness, of course, we could, you know, have bright lights are on, open-eyed meditation. Yeah, so even with the open eyes, you're still good to sleep. Close of their own volition. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would turn to walking meditation. And here's the interesting thing, that when you go to walking meditation and the mind becomes more more stable and, and more curious, you'll, you're, you will see, and well, I'll leave it up, maybe I'll just leave it up for your own experience, but still go back and sit for a little bit too to see if the mind is beginning to brighten on its own. Would I walk like outdoors where there's lots of stimuli or just walk in a room around in circles? Or? So uh, it doesn't matter which one that you do. So the traditional walking meditation is taking about 10 paces so you, and you come up to after class too, I could do it for you, you know, but it's about 10 paces long and your mind, you use mindfulness of body and then you do lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, and you're mindful of, of body and movement, right? And you just do about 10 paces then you recommit yourself, recollect yourself, feel the bottom of your feet and then move again. So you could do it in a small room. You just do a little walking back. So it's a very traditional practice. I this is, think this is where we got pacing from. You know, in the West we pace. When we have too much anxiety, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about in the middle of the Vietnam War having so much anxiety he couldn't even do sitting meditation. He just did walking. He had just too much stimuli. You know, working with kids, I always go for a, let's go for a walk. Right? With if I'm doing teaching kids, they have too much anxiety. They can't they can't sit still, right? But they can be mindful of body walking. Yeah. There's four foundations of mindfulness and the couple that I always use in terms of an object of meditation were breathing and body scans. Mm -hmm. And what I would find is I would get bored mm -hmm. with doing the same old thing year after year. Mm -hmm. So my question is, um, mixing objects or what would you suggest? Um, you know I've worked with Vedna and just being aware of thoughts coming in too, mm -hmm. which adds a lot to it, but I think even what we do in our heads when we're meditating, much less when we're off the cushion, which is another subject I'd like to talk about, but right now just to talk about the objects, mm -hmm. how do we keep doing something without it becoming rote, mm -hmm. without it not becoming as meaningful, say, as it once was, because I guess if I find that I, I limit what I'm doing, so if I'm just meditating on breath, that's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. I'm not really focusing on my emotions. Mm -hmm. or noticing thoughts that are trying to come in, mm -hmm. or whatever. So what would you suggest about selecting an object of meditation and when to switch it around or not? Yeah, another great one. Great question. 
usually it's a matter of our curiosity and investigation becoming dull right so we're, we're losing curiosity for the object so what what is it about something that's new you notice that our attention for something that's new becomes more heightened because it's new right we have that curiosity so if we look at the seven factors of enlightenment mindfulness investigation energy mindfulness investigation energy if we lose our investigation we lose our energy for the practice yeah so usually you need to you need to strengthen your mindfulness and you need to strengthen the concentration i would do this before i move an object any day right because that's going to become the same with that other object it's not about the object it's what's beneath the object if you look at a table and can see the universe you can see the way right so it's not about the table it's about what's behind the table if you're still looking at an object then you look deeper at the object right because the object is be going to become more and more subtle and the observer and what is observed is that relationship's going to be keep keep changing yeah so it's usually when our when our mindfulness is beginning to wane then you know to strengthen to strengthen that up you know and how do you do that with more mindfulness <laughs> yeah I mean the more you can say about that I think the more um, it's helpful well yeah mindfulness leads to more mindfulness so more attention leads to more attention um, it's uh, yeah when we're tending to an object then the, then the more the more we the more we do the more we can do Right, so the more the mind wanders, the more the mind uh, it gets allowed to wander. So, like if you're, if you're, if you're really on an object and you're very very stable, and then the mind is moving into more and more subtle states, there's not a problem, is it? Um, are you noticing? In other words, in your meditations, are you noticing? Um, what are you noticing as far as if your if your mind is stable? There must be some instability, right? That you're talking well, about. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Because if there's not, then there's nowhere to go, nothing to do, and and you're in presence, a presence. Yeah. So so the difficulty is the sustaining of of attention. Yeah. Well, see, it can seem like I'm still on the breath, or I'm still on the body scan. But obviously that's not where I need to be, so I'm a little confused about... I mean, it's one thing if you're, I'm following the breath and then suddenly I'm thinking about what's for dinner, right? I mean, that's yeah. pretty clear to me. Yeah. But if I'm still on the breath... Yeah. Then I'm not sure what else there is to do. Yeah, so <laughs> if, if you're still on the breath, are you fully present with the breath or are you just kind of well, there? Well, no, I guess that's the question. I mean, you mean by fully present is are there not intervening hindrances or whatever else going on or distractions? I mean, if if you know, focus to me means that it's continuous. Yeah, it's if it's, it's continuous, it's not. What? It's not going to be continuous. Yeah, it's, so you're going to you know leave the object and you're going to come back. You know, yeah. leave the object and come back. So that's going to be like the nature of all the meditations, right? Leave the object and come back, right? So if you're leaving the object and coming back, and then that stability, like when you're on the object longer and longer, mm -hmm. it'll that'll start to grow. But even in the even in coming back and forth, 
there is a there is a difference so that the mental state is beginning to to shift into calm right mm -hmm. yeah and so if we're if you're noticing any shifting and calming then then that's the practice I and mean, you're gonna and again if you change an object then you're still gonna you're still gonna be going back and forth like this you know the idea is is to be to be with that process at a longer and longer periods of time when you're basically catching the thoughts sooner mm -hmm. and you're hanging out an object longer <coughs> right to the part like four in the stage fourth on the stage of con um, concentrations continual placement which means the mind doesn't doesn't ever leave the object right but but even then you're feeling a, a sense of, of peace so my, my kind of question is why are you questioning that if that's what you're doing you're gonna find you know, you're going to find that fruition of the practice at some point, which goes more, uh, going to give you energy for continued practice. Right? So that dull mind, that dull mind is you're lingering off in the mental state of long. That's when we get bored. Right? When we get bored is we're, we're, we're hanging out a little, we're hanging out a long time in the thinking mind. Okay. Yeah. You know, so... Um, and so what to do is basically to bring more energy to the practice you might have cultivate more spiritual urgency cultivate uh, death and impermanence I know this is a downer for most people but it's just like it has to happen now okay. so cultivating those things that make the mind bright and like I only have today I only have this sit think about how precious it is think about the four thoughts that turn the mind towards Dharma that wow I know I know the Dharma I've learned the teachings I have a technique I have a healthy mind and body and it's impermanent. I don't know how much longer it's going to be. Like, there's a whole that whole practice or the whole saying, "Practice like your hair is on fire," mm -hmm. or Yogananda would say, "You know, you gotta want you gotta want God like a drowning man wants air. <laughs> it's got to be like that." And then we're we we have all that energy. And if you have that, if you have all that, and it's coming back and it's sustaining, it's going to continue. Okay. Yeah. Just an aside, it reminds me of a t-shirt I saw that said, when was the last time you saw something for the first time? <laughs> yeah. And, and if we're doing the practice right, every moment's the first time. Yeah, because if we're in this moment, that means we had to let go of the last moment. Right? And we're just here. And that's, that's that freshness, that investigation. And that leads to rapture. So that energy, then we lead to, that leads to rapture, the seconds, and then as we continue on the seven factors, that rapture leads to calm, the calm leads to concentration, and the concentration leads to insight. It leads to equanimity, right? So we just, we just follow that, we follow that track. If we start missing any of those, we just go back and say, oh, my mindfulness is off or my investigation is off, that zeal, that curiosity, right? That's how I'm going to move into the energy piece and then go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I just need a little clarity on your talk a little bit. Um, I thought that you said in the past that we could literally achieve enlightenment like that, like at noon. Is that possible for us? We could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I just wanted clarity on that. Yeah. Are you talking about from my, my friend's email? <laughs> the, the combination of your talk and then 
what you read from his email, yeah. But it is possible that we could, as, as human beings, achieve enlightenment, enlightenment this afternoon. I mean, it is possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, enlightenment's an accident. Right. You know, <laughs> like Togum Chupa says, it's like an accident. Meditation makes you accident prone. <laughs> but, um, but I think the non-seeking aspect is, is quite, it's a big paradox. And the, the closer you get to the truth, the bigger the paradox. It's a big, big paradox. But um, that, that release of seeking mind that does really help, you know. Um, and it's just weird because the release of seeking it helps. And then also like the profound seeking it helps as well like in the as far as merit building goes because it's really weird that the 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 more we practice the less ego the less attachment we have so it's just like that email that he sent he's like he's practicing more but seeking less mm -hmm. you know it's it's interesting right so he's more passionate about practicing less seeking mm -hmm. it's weird because usually we don't have that here and this is where people don't get like compassion and stuff, and especially self-compassion. They're like, oh, I'm going to kick myself in the ass hard enough, long enough, I'm going to do, 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 and I'm going to achieve. Mm -hmm. And yet the research shows is that if you forgive yourself, if you're kind to yourself, actually you're more productive. Mm -hmm. You actually get more done if you're kind you know, to yourself. So it's kind of like this too, like with, with enlightenment. So we're, we're still practicing, we're practicing with passionate non-attachment. Passion, passionate non-attachment. Yeah. Um, I recently did a yoga teacher certification and it's really interesting because one of the things that I learned is also exactly what you just said. Um, I learned that in order to sustain a regular yoga practice, there's two pillars that are very important. And the two pillars are practice itself and detachment. And both of these two pillars feed off of each other, just like you're saying. So the more you practice, the more your ability to detach um, increases. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, you're, if you have a sense of detachment, then it's easier to practice. And I think the reason is, is because when we practice, because practice itself is for the practice. Like, we're not practicing because we want less anxiety, for example. We're not practicing because we want enlightenment, for example. We're practicing because for the practice itself. So we're engaging in that practice of just the practice itself, then naturally the sense of detachment is going to increase. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's really interesting that... Um, they're both saying the same thing, basically. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mark and then Shannon. Um, this might be stupid. Oh, well, my, my experience lately is I've never had a daily practice. All, all the time I come here, it was I struggle with daily practice. Now I've I I I do have a daily practice in the morning and at night. Good job, man. Between five and twenty minutes. It's hard, it's hard to go 20, but mm -hmm. 15 is usually like my standard guarantee. Mm -hmm. And since, since that's taken place, there's been a lot of calmness, a lot less seeking. But then I, what, I, what I heard this morning, that, like vegan, and I thought, well, you got to be a vegan to get that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a stupid question, but I, like, I like meat, you know what I mean? Does that mm -hmm. matter? 
doesn't matter. No, you could eat meat and become enlightened. Yeah, it's it's oh, it's oh. not a problem. There are, <laughs> yeah, there are some. Um, yeah, you you can. It's it's it's. There are some etheric things that like we're really tapping into our energy bodies too. We have our physical bodies and we have our subtle bodies, right? right? right. And. And in meditation, too, that subtle body is being stirred, and that subtle body collects a lot of karmic imprints, we call it, right? So stuff happens, and they're stored in our, our energy bodies, you could say like our emotional bodies, physical bodies, subtle bodies, right? And as we meditate, these subtle body channels are getting to, the energy is starting to flow through these channels. And so this is why stuff comes up in meditation, is because... This, these, this energy is moving through the channels, the subtle channels in the body, and sometimes it meets resistance, right? Being that there's like debris in the psychic body or the subtle body, right? Some, so the more healthy we eat, the, we're, the, the subtle body is cleansed by that. So some meats, especially red meat, carries a more dirty, etheric dirty energy to it, right? So it's more coarse. Right. Yeah, so when... So with some of these practices where we're starting to stir up that energy very forcefully in a very, very direct, strong way, there's just no meat. Like you don't, you don't want meat in the body because it's like, you know, if you have water going through a hose, um, you want that water to be, to be pure. You don't want to clumpy a whole bunch of stuff in it. Yeah? yeah. Well, that makes sense. It's interesting that you say, because I've just been hearing, you know how the universe the universe works for me. I hear something. I this is like I keep hearing this thing about becoming a vegan. You know what I mean? And, and so maybe and and the thing that thing he said with with the garden hose. I remember this guy years ago said the trick is we want to unkink the hose and have mm. everything just flow. Mm, mm-hmm. It's just weird. I, I maybe maybe it's something that I'm. Headed to, and I'm a little re- bit resistant. Of, you know, it sounds like that might be, you know what I mean? Oh, God. Anyway, so, <laughs> but thank you very much. I, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll quit. Well, it's all good. And I just say what, one last thing on that is that, um, you know, to to bring intention at the very least, bring intention into the into the practice. So obviously, I was talking about the Tibetans, and they eat a lot of meat, and you know, they. They're just sending a lot of intention and prayer and gratitude and thankfulness that that's just a wonderful start, you know, for for all of us, for that gratitude, for that life that's been given. And and even if we're eating vegetables, there's a lot of human lives and and even animals and sun and earth and all this stuff that brought us that thing. So gratitude's for all of it, right? Yeah. Thanks, Thank you. It's good to see you being here. Yeah, Shannon. Um, I think in regards to like energy for the practice um, and you always talk about intention being really important and um, I think that we don't always sometimes our intention is one thing and then maybe it's something else but like lately I noticed that my intention um, comes to like I want to see things clearly like I want to know the truth um, and that's like, you know, you investigate your own like thoughts and stuff like that. Um, so I just, for myself, I'm always wanting to know what's true. And your book's really helping me. <laughs> and I'm doing a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. And that's helping me. 
That's all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if you could speak more to um, what you mean by an object in meditation. Cool. See you, Mark. <laughs> an object, what I'm talking about in an object is what just the mind comes back to. So in other words, if you're, if you're using the, ab the sensations found in the abdomen, mm -hmm. the rise and fall of the abdomen as your object, that would mean when the mind wanders, that's what you're bringing it back to. Okay. Also called like an anchor, an object, yeah, something to bring the mind back to. Um, and then also, it doesn't need to be a thing. It could be like if you're doing loving kindness practice, you know, it's the it's the visualization. May all beings be happy. It could be something visualized. It could be a mantra. Um, okay. It could be the energy going through your body. How do you? Is there? I'm finding that I'm getting kind of. It almost kind of feels like a gym day sometimes when I sit down. Like, mm -hmm. okay, loving kindness. All right. mm -hmm. <laughs> Tomorrow's gonna be breath. Okay, we're going to do a split. And I'm just kind of thinking, like, is that the right routine to go through? Or should, it, should it be more how I'm feeling that day? Or what's... Or am I, am, I, am I trying to split it up because I don't want to get bored? I'm kind of thinking... I'm trying, I'm trying, I guess I'm grappling with intention when I sit down. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of staying with certain practices for at least you know, five years or so, okay. um, the same practices, yeah. at least, uh, before we, we move on. Um, just because the, the stone, like if you drop a stone in deep water, you know, we keep popping up to the top and it's very turbulent or, what, or whatnot, but when we stick with the same technique, we can go deep with it, okay. right? So I'm a big fan of that. Um, and then as far as, and, and also too, the hindrance of doubt is really big here. I call it like spiritual indigestion because we have so many other practices to choose from that we don't know which, we don't know which one to do all the time, and and then therefore we're we're bopping all around, yeah. right? So also too to stay with a couple, it 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 just helps with that, right? So even the question, and we all I mean, most of us have that question, but it's just it's doubt, you know? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? And you, what you should be doing is doing something. <laughs> and if you're, if you're sitting down and meditating, that's awesome. I mean, like I said, any one of these practices, practices can go all the way there. There's a sect in Tibetan Buddhism that all they do, 100% of the main practice is Om Mani Padme Oms. Om Mani Padme Om Mani Padme Millions. Just Om Mani Padme Om. You know, with the intention of loving kindness. So that, that's it. So, yeah, just stick with those two. I mean, I, I would say the, the one thing I'll add to that is definitely have a heart practice in there. If you have a heart practice, that could be your only one. But if you're just doing mindfulness of breath, for example, then you will need to add in a heart practice. Loving kindness, seven-point cause and effect if you're a Tibetan, Tonglen, giving and receiving, you know, something like that. The Brahmaviharas, you know, there has to be some kind of heart practice in there. Other than that... Do something. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So, um, oh, one question I thought was kind of coming from her a little bit, or maybe it's my question, but I'm trying to get the distinction between, like, so I understand that 
um, like for example with the object or being at the breath or something we're looking at, it's the tool to uh, help us in our practice. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a tool mm -hmm. we're using. But eventually the Dharma, as I'm starting to learn in all these classes I'm taking with you, then um, really eventually that goes away. Tool, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're sort of you're sort of then in the spaciousness of being. I don't know how else to put mm -hmm. it. So, can you give a distinction between the spaciousness of being versus mm -hmm. spacing out? <laughs> yeah, because the spaciousness of being is still an object. The spaciousness of being is it's still, still an object, right? So the object becomes more and more subtle. Mindfulness of external inanimate object outside of body. This is like the grossest, heaviest object, right? Meditating on plant. It's outside of myself. It's a physical thing. It's inanimate. It's not even alive, right? Well, I don't know if there's a plant's alive. It looks fake, but maybe it is. I don't know. It's real? Okay. Oh, yeah. I don't know, is it? The trip. In and out, <laughs> yeah, external, right? So then we go to internal objects, right? So our awareness turns to internal objects, and those are those are gross and subtle as well. So the physical body, right, is a very uh, heavy object, and then we can go to subtle objects like thoughts and emotions. Those become subtle, right? And then there's a more subtle object which is awareness itself. So we call this choiceless awareness, right, or just awareing. Where now we're aware of awareness. So this is very very subtle. <laughs> Then, then the final subtle factor, which is, uh, which is uh, true nature of mind. So then we get like a glimpse of like, not only aware of awareness, but wow, this is just my naked essence of beingness, right? So there's, there's a misinterpretation when we get to the, those higher, higher realms of very, very subtle practices, because in the text, they'll say things like, you know, don't meditate like non-meditation meditation, right? And uh, don't meditate, but don't be distracted. These types of things. What they're pointing to is that even, even efforting could bring in a subject-object aspect to the practice. So you're just with beingness. But it doesn't mean you're lost in thought. It doesn't mean you're spacing out. Spacing out is you don't know where you are. Paying attention to break down the very basic mindfulness definition. Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, mm -hmm. non-judgmentally. So it means you are there and you know you are. When you're present with presence and you're just, you know, sometimes the body in meditation will, and you will feel very, very small. Sometimes you, we will feel very, very vast. But you will always know that, that you're present. So, so, so that doesn't leave. Uh -huh. That doesn't leave. Awareness never leaves. Because isn't there times where there's like, um, like non-person, like non, you know, like. Yeah, there's no subject-object at some point. Yeah. But there's still presence. There's there still might presence. not be. There might not be a meditator left. Like no self is what. I'm saying. Yeah. So in other words, there might the meditator might leave. The idea that there's a meditator and a meditation and an object might leave. Mm -hmm. There's still presence. Okay, so it's basking in that presence. You, yeah, it, there's, there's no one basking. There's just, 
it's just being, is it's just isness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being being presence. Being okay. Yeah, yeah. But it is a good point too, though, <laughs> what you're alluding to, because it is a good point that that I, I like to emphasize is that no matter what the technique is, when we get to that point where the meditation, which I like to say, meditation begins to meditate you. In other words, you find your yourself not needing to kind of come back because you're not really leaving, right? So you're not coming back to the object anymore because you're just present. So it's, drop the meditation at that point. Totally fine, drop the meditation. In other words, what I mean by that is drop the object. You don't need to come back to the breath anymore. If, if you're just sitting there and you're in presence and you're noticing the mind's not leaving, there still might be thoughts, but I'm not really leaving. You could just sit there and be in this. And just be in beingness. Yeah. So that got you there. You know what I mean? That meditation, that coming back, returning, staying, returning, staying, returning, staying. And then I'm just here. And go ahead and release. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you're awareing. You're still aware. And then what happens is that, that usually crum crumbles. Mm. And then you get lost in thought again. And then you might need to do your things again. Mm -hmm. Come back. And then, yeah. And come back. All right, one more little sure. caveat to this. So then, off the cushion and out into the world. Yes. You know, I mean, there's the the, the planner or the doer or the ego and all this stuff. But then there's times where you're just moving in your path and you're um, in presence and something is in front of you and you act. It's not about thinking to act or whatever. It, that that action in that moment that's being called for and you respond in that moment. That's presence. I mean, technically, it's all presence. Okay. Yeah, te technically, again, we technically presence never leaves. Presence is not generated through your effort, right? It's like walking up to a mountain. The mountain's always there. Right. Whether you walk up to the mountain or not, it's always there. Mm -hmm. Like there's no there's no cause and effect of of full awakening. Awakening is present all the time. Mm -hmm. Whether you come back to touch it or not is up to you, mm -hmm. right? So if you're doing whatever you're doing and you're conscious of doing it, then you're in awareness, right? But if you're doing that of just habit or habitual actions or stuff like that, so we could sleep, we could sleep drive to work, mm -hmm. right? Or mm -hmm. we could be awake to, right. to that I'm driving, right? The ability, the, the opportunity for that wakefulness is always there. Whether or not we tap into it or not, it's a different story. Right? Awareness never leaves you. But you leave it. Mm -hmm. Can we all get that? Because yeah. when you go back to awareness, you're like, oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just been sitting there waiting for me, yeah. going, come on, Paula, come back. Right, right. <laughs> That's not way. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still just a little stuck with um, St. St. Francis, not of the sissy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it really surprised me that I, I understand where you're going with it all, but it seemed to me that love should be the ocean. Hmm. Yeah, I think, like I said, we need love to be bigger, but I think that to, to achieve love, we need patience. Hmm. To, to, to achieve the realization that we are love, it takes a ton of patience. And it takes love, too. So I know what you're saying, you know, because I think it needs love. We need to really love ourselves 
in, in that way, but that's part of patience to me. I think patience has all these qualities. Like, how do we get to patience? Oh, man, we need a lot of love, you know. But then we also need like courage. And we need we need strength. We need discipline, which, you know, we, we we're not. And there's part of meditation these days where discipline is not brought up a lot. We need like kind of hardcore discipline, you know, for this 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 practice, you know. So I think that in all of that comes that patience, and love is a big ingredient in that. And I think I'm I'm right with you there. Um, in a way, it could be interchangeable, but then also qualities of patience that we need um, outside of love are there too. See what time we have. Oh yeah, let's just sit for a minute. Think for a moment of how rare that is to stop. How rare it is to be with like-minded people, Sangha, spiritual community. And I think that when I say spiritual community, what comes to mind to me is people that are trying. They're trying just like me. And when you're around people that are trying just like you, it's very supportive. So let us share the merit today to all of our brothers and sisters and community members. include all beings everywhere without exception. We somehow, some way on the vibration of intention, may they feel like they too have a spiritual community. The people that are pulling for them. And they may may they also share in any insights any flashes of wisdom, any droplets of love and compassion that might have arisen together today. May all beings everywhere without exception, may they find more happiness and less suffering. Om Mani Padme Hum.
You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.